Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with with me, as always, is a man with a real fine set of games. I am the Adam Glass, and they go all the way up. <laughs> oh man, I every it's so rare in my life that somebody says games in a movie and is not being like ironic or 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 joking. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and it's it's weird because. Of all the noir films and all the films of this era we've seen, well, I've never I heard of picked this one as the one to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, and, yeah, none of the other ones have. It's really amazing. It's worth also noting that this one is from nineteen freaking fifty-seven, so it's so it's right, right. already it's a like period piece and a weird sort of like pastiche of noir. <laughs> Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon real quick. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Yeah. That dollar a month actually gets you access to uh, the whole back catalog of bonus episodes. It's a, Every month, it's a non-criterion film over there, and uh, supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch. And we've got like 67 over there. I mean, it's there. so it's many. A whole, a whole nother, it's over a year of content. Assuming you, know, you listen to it once a week as well. Yeah. yeah. Alternatively, uh, it's like two and a half days of like, well, kind of probably hell, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Should not do that. Right. Don't do it straight. Yeah. Don't um, don't, don't binge listen to uh, to our bonus yeah. episodes. I think it will hurt. No matter what you are doing, do not binge listen to whatever whatever your body is engaged with. Don't engage your mind in this way. Yeah. You will only hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do appreciate uh, all those $1 supporters. Honestly, it's the, the reason that when we get emails from Manscaped offering to sponsor our podcast, we can just laugh at them I, and say... Here's the thing. I, I On the other hand, I don't want to take Manscaped's money, but I do want to run their ads yeah. anyway because I want to do a very <laughs> bad job of doing Manscaped ads. I would... I would love the opportunity for Manscaped to send us another email that says, hey, maybe don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Could you stop? Very grateful to all our Patreon supporters, even at the one dollar mark, because we don't have to do things like that. Uh, as fun as they would be uh, to try and I find mean, the would, manscaped, yeah, the the male personal grooming uh, hook into every every criteria. <laughs> every criterion movie. I just like the idea that, like, beyond that, which is which is a fun premise in and of itself. It's just like I would enjoy finding the line that a relatively disgusting company would have where the airline <laughs> in the sand is, where it's like, oh, you, yeah. we can't let you be a, we're not going to sponsor you anymore. You have really, yeah. you really crossed You're, a line here. You are a product that embraces the fact that it is for pubic hair. Uh, well, and, and just yet, the weirdest I have a way. Feeling you do have a line. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's like it's like I I just find they're they're they've got yeah. maybe they, sometimes they're not so bad, but their commercials are very like oh this this feels gross. They are. This they are. nothing to do with pubic hair. Everything to do with just the way uh, they market themselves is like mm, I don't yes. know about this. Uh, helping us stay a little further away from Manscaped, <laughs> uh, our five dollars supporters for folks who can afford it and want to help keep us going a little bit more. Greatly appreciate them as well. So much so we thank them on air. 
And thank you so much to our current $5 supporters, Chris Otto, Stephen Goldmeyer, Eric Coronado, and Andrew Jarrett. Yes, thank you very much. Above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. Maybe sometimes he lists the, uh, the possibility of getting arrested at Japanese elementary <laughs> school. <laughs> uh, Pat is making reference to his most recent one, which I have seen as of this morning, uh, but won't get mailed out for uh, for a little bit, uh, where he uh, did a I, physical montage of materials. I did uh, not commit any crimes. Let's be very clear here. Yes. I would be arrested. I would be illegitimately arrested. Let's be very clear. Yes. It involved fake blood on a children's playground. That's that's where he fears that he could have crossed some lines. Uh but uh it was just it was just to take the picture where it would be easy to clean up. I mean also uh, I needed a sandbox and I don't have right. one. Right, right, right. I don't You don't live that close to the ocean. I, I well I mean uh, I do. I actually my I had part of the process was it, while in bed, thinking of this at like one o'clock in the morning, I said, "But I, th- I, where should I do it? I could do it on the kitchen table. No, what, what's a good spot for that? Oh, it needs to be a beach. Where do I get a beach? Oh, the beach is like forty-five. Is like thirty minutes away. I don't want to drive to the beach. So like, where can I get sand? I guess I could go to the home store, home goods store, and buy a bag of sand. I was like, wait a minute, sandbox. I know where a there sandbox you know. is. You worked it out. You worked it out. It worked out well. At one o'clock um, in the morning, half asleep." <laughs> Uh, but Pat's Pat's commitment to his art is uh, fantastic. I love the opportunity to showcase his art, uh, which we take once a month when he makes a postcard based on one of the movies we've watched recently. Uh, once a month, I get give or take. up and write a little personalized. Yeah, yeah. give or take some time, um, depending on how long it takes. Depends on how long the orders right. take to get in. In this case, for all the props, yeah, sometimes sometimes they take a little bit of time. Uh, everybody hits. You know, everybody gets writer's block, artist block sometimes, and we got to allow for that. Um, but, yeah, I write a little personalized thank you note when we get those in and send them out to all our $10 and above supporters. And I want to thank those folks on air as well. Thank you so much to Adam Speakerman, Nina Bajnak, Jason Westaver, Patrick Yako, and Tracy McGrath, our $10 and above supporters. Thank you very much. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com. They're on a bit of delay, so you won't get to see Pat's fancy new one. Yeah, you won't get to see yet. what got me almost arrested yet. <laughs> um, all in your head, though. Uh, I don't know. The guy driving the tow truck did look at me pretty suspiciously. Uh, you were being suspicious. Um, anyway, <laughs> head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there. You can see those past postcards. You can buy them as postcards, as greeting cards, as one as a T-shirt, many as stickers, some as pins when the art has worked out for them. Uh, no, uh, no throw pillows yet, but, but we're I'm, working I'm on tempted it. every month. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, shorts, the art, generally speaking, now is high enough resolution that you could do that if you wanted to. Thank you so much to everybody who has purchased anything off that Redbubble. Everybody who supports us on Patreon, and thank you. For listening. Pat, this week we are talking about Sweet Smell of Success from 1957, American film noir that for some reason, uh, looking up information about it last week, I thought was a dark comedy, but it's just a dark movie. It yeah, is not, not a, a comedy. comedy. Not a comedy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless you uh, enjoy, by- unless you find men saying games funny, <laughs> which I do. <laughs> That's Which is fair, yes. Um, it is directed by Alexander McKendrick. Uh whose friends seem to call him Sandy. 
Alexander uh, Sandy is a short for Alexander. Always, uh, always bewilders me. But I mean, it's there. Yes, I get it. Anything can be short for anything, uh, as we know. I mean, it's, it's really... true. It's true. Uh, it is um, based on a novella by a guy named Ernest uh, Ernest Lehman. Lehman was a uh, was a PR guy himself. Was was basically. Tony Curtis's character in this that is his author insert for this but Lehman also wrote a whole bunch of other stuff including The Comedian which we saw adapted by John Frankenheimer in the uh, television the teleplays box set we did a few few months ago Uh, and North by Northwest which I didn't realize when we talked about The Comedian Uh, the contract he signed to sell uh, Sweet Smell of Success to Burt Lancaster's production company Involved him being the, uh, him be, being paid to write the script, him writing the screenplay, and also him directing the movie. Wait, okay. Uh, oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That did not happen. Right. Um, <laughs> Probably for the best. Uh, he was, he was pretty quickly fired. Yes. Uh, and ended up spending, uh, much of the production, uh, in Tahiti. From what I remember correctly, oh, I I, I, I did not. I I'm sure they said that in that documentary, <laughs> but I missed that part. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so instead, it was adapted by a guy named Clifford Odets, um, who uh, I mean had a pretty illustrious career himself. A lot of uh, laymen is cut out of this, uh, obviously. And then they were doing a lot of sort of fly by the seat of your pants things too. So our director. Uh, also gets a writing credit, um, according to IMDb, uh, or rather, according to Wikipedia, he also did uncredited rewrites on it, uh, which doesn't surprise me. Um, McKendrick was born in Boston to Scottish parents, but then grew up in Scotland. Uh, which he describes as 100% American, which I very, very, very funny. It's very fun. That interview <laughs> yeah, with him is yeah. very funny uh, that yeah. way. Um he started working in Britain, uh, mostly post-war. Uh, he directed the original Lady Killers. Um, he directed uh, a whole bunch of stuff from 1949 into 19, uh, the mid-50s for Ealing. Um, Mandy, uh, The Man in the White Suit, Whiskey Galore. Um, then he did this in the U.S., Sweet Smell of Success, and... Uh, a quintessentially New York movie, right? Made with all of its interiors shot in Hollywood, um, which is as, also as you do New York, isn't it? Yeah. Um, after that, he made a white boy having an adventure in Africa movie called Sammy Goes South, going where they south. had to film where where seemingly yeah. anything that could go wrong did go wrong, and they had to shoot right. everything everything in the wrong place with the wrong actors. Yeah. So between between Fallout with Layman over this movie and its lack of success, um, mostly because it's a black and white, very cynical noir coming in, out in 1957. Yeah, in 1957, it's it is yeah. is very much a, an animal out of time. It is a really <laughs> right. I, I I when I started the movie, I was like, wait a minute, why? My, I did a like a, my brain had a lot of like this movie makes you do a lot of mental flips. Cause you're just like, wait a minute, that's Tony Curtis. This is. 
Yeah. Burt Lancaster. I don't understand, like, what's happening here? Why is this movie from nineteen the 1930s happening in 1957? This doesn't... It's It's really... Yeah. It's a very strange movie that way. Like I imagine audiences probably had a similar reaction of like what what the fuck is this? Like why is this happening? Right. Yeah. Um then he did uh he did a movie called A High Wind in Jamaica, which is another sort of kids adventure movie um with Anthony Quinn and James Coburn as as pirates. Um and then a uh Tony uh, Tony Curtis returning to star but in 1967, 10 years after this, his final director credit is Don't Make Waves. Which a, is apparently uh, a, a 60s sex comedy. Yeah. That nobody likes. Um, <laughs> apparently is 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 atrocious, yeah. apparently. That doesn't surprise me. Um, so anyway, everything he made after this was also not very good. <laughs> uh, this movie is phenomenal. I will say just, on the other hand, said, out of time. Uh, High Wind in Jamaica, the review... Of the idea of uh, what's her name? Um, oh, I forget what they described it as. Uh, what's uh, the famous child actor? Uh, <laughs> yes. um, so the reviewer who called it Shirley the, Temple. But like, I forget what exactly it? what the review, but it's like something to the effect of like Shirley Temple, but she's also dismembering people or something like that. Yes. Does sound like no, no, a no. thing I would be interested Shirley in. T- Shirley Temple singing "Good Ship Lollipop" while dismantling a puppy. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. I think it's this, yeah, yeah. It's like really yeah. like I I kind of want to see a high wind in Jamaica now, based solely on that uh, <laughs> yeah. that observation, that negative review. Yes, it makes yeah. me so interested. What the fuck this thing is? So his his career dropped off pretty quickly after this. Um, prior to this, his Ealing stuff um, was you know well enough respected. He was making a movie a year, right? Uh, and the Lady Killers, the original Lady Killers, is also a very dumb movie, and it is bo- basically the original Lady Killers, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, Alec Guinness having fun, which is fine. Alec Guinness having fun is great. I mean, in a uh, lot but, of ways, the remake of Lady Killers is just Tom Hanks having fun, right? And Tom Hanks is allowed to have fun too, right? I mean, <laughs> I do, I do. In fact, actually, I, it's been probably what. How how many years? But I did enjoy Lady Killers when I watched it with my parents yeah. when I was in like junior high school or whatever. Uh, right. Uh, presumably more fart jokes in the new one, but I don't actually know if that's true because it's been a long time since I've seen the original. I feel like a lot so. of British movies have a fair amount of fart jokes in them. To be honest, yeah, that's probably true. Um, but because of the nature of his career being all Ealing stuff prior to this and all. Uh, career falling apart after this uh our dvd for the criterion collection also includes a lot of retrospective on alexander mckendrick's work um it's interesting to me that shortly after his directorial stuff dried up he got into teaching and ended up teaching at cal arts uh a school disney founded for their animation program but also uh was uh, pretty good as far as uh, film schools go, I'd say. But uh, I don't know. I didn't go there. <laughs> um, so we get uh, we get one interview with uh, with James Marigold talking talking about his experience learning under McKendrick. Um, 
Which is, it's always fun who Criterion chooses to get for these sorts of I, things. I swear, like, like what I here's my theory on how this works. Okay, they've got their yeah. like closet that they do those little specials. My assumption yeah. is like this all happens in some sort of weird like. Okay, we've got this person in our studio for one day. What can we shoot with them? Yeah. yeah. And then they just like stack up like, okay, they're going to be here for like six hours. Boom, 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 but boom, like, boom. Here's nine things we can do. Because sometimes it's just like a dude shot. talking about a movie that they have no no relationship with it at all. Yeah. Well, I saw when, this when, when I was When that interview was shot, what had James Mangold done? <laughs> like... 310, his 310 to Yuma remake would have already come out. Oh, Girl Interrupted. I forgot he did Girl Interrupted. So that would have been something. Um, Walk the Line had a lot of a lot of good promise. I, I, I 310 to Yuma would have been his most well, recent I one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I just think of him as like the director of Logan and the Wolverine. <laughs> it's like the defining right, right, moment of I, his I career. I think that's probably a little unfair. In my mind. Right? That's a little unfair. And it is very unfair. Um, I absolutely forgot that he directed Copland and Girl Interrupted, though. So, all right, he's he's got a little Mangold's got a little more weight than than I was thinking he had as I was watching that interview. Right, right. but None, nonetheless, but, uh, I will say that like, oftentimes Criterion draws extremely tenuous connections, and it really does yes. to me feel like, well, we had them in the studio, and this thing was coming out, and like. Somehow or another, in all of our discussions with the person, it came out that they really liked this movie, so we just shot a thing with them. Right, right. And, yeah, it's it's great to have a famous director who did learn under... I mean, uh, but it's probably, like, there's probably a lot of them, right? Like, I mean, if you think about right. when that school was founded... If he taught and, it... And, you know. Right. If he got... Caught it... He taught at Cal, Cal Arts for a few years, uh, I think over a decade possibly over two decades so like yeah he's gonna there's a lot of people who learn under him yeah a lot of um yeah just just gonna hit a lot of people right at that point learning about his process you know he's got an uh sandy's got a got an artist background he went to art school then he got into advertising uh and one thing mangold shares about whenever he needed to share a frame of a movie in class and this being before any of the stuff they were watching was on video, so there was no pause button. And pausing pausing the film would just cause burnout on the frames, right? Right. So so Sandy's solution to that would would be to hand draw the frame. Which is which is wild. Uh, which is wild. <laughs> um and the examples they show are really good, obviously. Mm-hmm. He's a man who, you know, he knew visually what he wanted out of these things. Well, and he you, knew visually and you can see that at least in this movie as well, to. right? Like the way he handled yeah. even figuring out what he wanted to show in this movie was a very sort of weird sort of artistic way to get there, right? Like yeah. his whole photography setup. Yeah. The talk, yeah, the talk he gives in one of the bonus features about the process of beginning to film this movie and how they basically gave him the budget to take a film camera a, a still camera uh, around New York and take thousands of photos and just put them all up on the wall and figure out how to frame New York City. And um, and the idea of 
of New York that he comes away from that, which is, I think, accurate. Uh, <laughs> this idea of New York as, as huge and sprawling, but also incredibly claustrophobic because because the vertical space keeps you from seeing anything. Right, but right? And, and he points out really rightly that like also the film camera doesn't capture that verticality right? unless it's done right. in a very specific way. So what you get when you shoot in New York is just a lot of the sides of buildings, right? right. Like you right. don't actually yeah. get – and so he, he talks about like it was, you know the, the process of like trying to eliminate and like coming to grips with the fact that like in your mind, right, as a person, you you have looked up. And so you, in your mind, know that those buildings are there and they're bearing down on you. But the camera doesn't show that at all. And so getting that in there is quite a an interesting challenge. And I, I it really calls to mind like that that thing that like, you know you don't we don't get a lot of directors talking about things in this way, but this I this idea that like the image in your mind is a sort of a composite of all of your experiences and it's very easy when making things to accidentally put in things that are actually physically impossible into your sort of mental image, right? Your mental image, you're going to show New York, you're going to show how tall the buildings are and how overbearing they all are. And then the only way to do that is Hudsucker proxy it basically. <laughs> right. Like if right, you actually right. want to show the fucking building, you have to like do the weirdest low angle shot humanly possible. Right. Or do a very high angle shot on a model. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or you have to build a model and zoom in. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, those are your two yeah. options, right? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hudsucker Proxy is definitely a movie that embraces the verticality of New York right. City. Right. But the thing um, is, is it because of the kind of movie it is, right, it's willing to be playful right. in a way that this can't be, right? Well, as soon as you start right, embracing right. how tall that fucking building is by doing the sort of shots yeah. you need to, now it's goofy. Because you've gone kind of comic booky, right? And the and the shots they do off of JJ's balcony, where he's looking out mm-hmm. over Times Square, are very interesting and very. And Times Square is especially claustrophobic. And to hear, to hear, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to hear McKendrick talk about it, Times Square was perhaps a place he especially put nervousness into because it's the first place he tried to shoot in New York. Right. Right. And and they do that opening shot on Times Square where he's only got three pages of usable script right. so far. And he's shooting at rush hour at twilight in Times Square uh, with a crane, with full, you know, he talks about how much easier it would be to shoot in New York today, whenever today is to that interview. It's prior well, it's to his death. New York's not used to being filmed but, in, right? Like, New York's not... Well, New York's used to be filming in, and technology has made it so that you don't have to have a camera on a dolly. Right. <laughs> or a crane to shoot all this. You can have one guy with a camera, uh, with a camcorder, you know? Something, you shoot digital, you need somebody with a phone to make these right, shots right. in in New York, right? Uh so yeah, the other thing about the shots is, th- and there's a bonus feature dedicated to cinematographer James Wong Howe on this, and I was surprised to realize that we we seem to have never experienced James Wong Howe's cinematography in the Criterion Collection yet. Um, there's at least one bonus movie, uh, uh, Lincoln in Illinois, that I believe we watched. Um, I think we watched that for the bonus because we did a we did a list of. Uh, Movies uh, with the same premises, premises yeah, a few a, years ago. Yeah. yeah. So when we watched Young Mr. Lincoln, I, I'm pretty sure we ended up watching uh, 
Lincoln in Illinois, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong that we watched it. Maybe I'm wrong that it won. Um, but anyway, uh, but yeah, he's such a prolific uh, cinematographer. You know, getting his start in the silent era, uh, and and so innovative. You know, he talks about it, and and he should about him being the guy who basically figures out how to shoot light eyes in the black and white silent era so that they appear to be dark. Uh, and yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy to have that retrospective. Right. Unfortunately, because of the nature of this movie and it being the only, uh, McKendrick film in the criterion collection too, we don't, we don't necessarily have the, uh, the data limit on our, on our DVD <laughs> to talk more about how than we get. Uh, how's a really interesting guy. Uh, during world war two, he'd show up for work in a movie that, in a t-shirt that said, actually I'm Chinese, <laughs> uh, uh, which is incredible. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a guy who, I mean, you know, for the first half of his career, better he's credited as Jimmy Howe, right? Right. Yeah. He's he's a guy who, for probably very good reason, is hiding his ethnicity professionally, uh, at least from the public. You know, obviously you you meet him, you know. Right. Right. But yeah, like, <laughs> you know, he's Chinese, I mean, we've but... we've encountered that because like there's you know that it, it's actually kind of amazing that he was able to, like that he stops doing that as early as he does actually yeah like yeah you know what i mean like that goes to 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 show what kind of talent he was that like he was able to not do that his entire career because he stops yeah. working in like the i mean like 70s right like you know it's very yeah, long career so. but like i mean he's he started so early like uh he was born in 1899 yeah, like yeah. At, that's a that that's a mind blower is what that is because like not only did he keep working all the way to the seventies, which is into his eighties, right? Like he's yeah. eighty years old, incredibly long career. Yes, uh, I, I, I it's yeah, and then and to be able and to be well yeah. respected enough in his, the field to like, I it, it's it's amazing. His career is amazing. Like it's so fucking yeah. long. It's a movie a year for like. 70 years or whatever not 70 like 60 right, right. years it's so long yeah his uh his final cinematography uh credit is for uh funny lady starring barbara streisand from 1975 and he passed away in 1976 so yeah i like, mean that, that's that's amazing i i yeah, I mean, I wish we had more data points. I would like to like know more. I would like to see more of his work, yeah, to get a better idea of like what parts of this are like purely his style and his his skill. I have to. I mean, obviously he shot the whole thing, but you know, you know, what I mean, he's got a style, right. right? And like this movie is so stylistic in and of itself, inherently being a noir, that I would like to have some things to compare it with to know, like, okay, like, I mean, obviously he's not shooting all these movies as noirs. Right, so like, what elements that happened are purely him, and what things are like just sort of necessitated by the style of the movie. Yeah, but he does a very good job because the 
the scenes of New York feel very New Yorky, like yeah, yeah, and you know he's he's particularly the way the interiors function here um is is a big a big credit to his lighting and they they feel like they exist right off the street right of of New York right well and, they, and that whole documentary with him he's just right. it's I was not expecting it to be a ten minute lighting tutorial. A la the sort of thing that you would <laughs> show love, in film school. I would to like. I would students. love. I would love to watch all of that. Right. I'm glad that that exists. Uh, but yeah, there is essentially a how-to guide on lighting a room. It's so good. For, it's so for, fucking good. Like I was like, oh man, I need to keep watching this. It's like, <laughs> this is so so well done. Yeah, yeah, it's very great. Um. So yeah, really appreciate Criterion for throwing that on here too. But hey, we should maybe talk about the movie. I guess so. Uh, I mean, the movie's very good too. Like, don't I'm not. The movie to... is phenomenal, and it's it's obvious. It's fun to talk about the talents that go into making the movie. And James Wong Howe is someone who needs to be talked about more. He won a couple of Oscars. Like, he's not underrated. So with this film, we get Burt Lancaster playing a gossip columnist. The scariest um, gossip just... columnist in the history of mankind. I'm with yeah. McKendrick. Well, Burt based, Lancaster is a fucking scary ass man. Yeah, uh, based on the scariest gossip columnist to ever actually exist, quite probably. Uh, though the actual person, not quite as menacing as Burt Lancaster physically. I mean, that's what I mean, yeah, like yeah. Um, but yeah, based on Walter Winchell, whose whose career we do get a little bonus feature about Winchell as well. And it was interesting to watch. I know that's one I told you you could I skip. I did not watch so it. I, I would be surprised I got if tired of watching uh, um, <laughs> bonus features, basically. Winch was a really interesting character. Um, so this just this week, I edited and posted our uh, our broadcast news right, episode. Right, which this feels like it's, uh, it's a weirdly timed companion to. Yeah. Um, the historian talking about Winchell in that bonus fe- feature posits him as prescient of the current state of news uh where when Winch- was someone who f- is the first person to personalize the news to put himself into how he reports uh and also someone who introduces celebrity uh new uh, you know newscaster celebrity uh he's you know he's very famous Winchell right. is um, and he's famous for what he does. Uh, now, the the fine line that I will allow to exist <laughs> between uh, gossip column and actual journalism is one that this historian erases. He does not. He does not talk about them two, as two different things. Uh, well, I, I would I argue. I know people who would take offense to that. I. I. But also, yeah, I understand it. I, I personally. <laughs> Do not believe there is a difference. I, I in in, right, in as right, much right. as there, I I I feel like Walter Winchell and then this this movie as a sort of evaluation of that goes to goes yeah. exactly to the point I was making in the other movie uh, episode, which is we can we can pretend that at some point the news was like some sort of like high highbrow right. profession of like of of noble effort. But really, reality—it's yeah. always been this bullshit. Like, I mean, yellow journalism right. existed, and this the is Spanish American War. Like, it's always been people using this position, right? To and like Winchell, Winchell gets his start in the twenties too, yeah. right? So, yeah. Um, quick biographical notes about Winchell: 
that I feel are perhaps pertinent to understanding the character in this movie. Uh, Winchell was a New Deal Democrat, heavy supporter of FDR. Uh, FDR welcomed this because Winchell was the most famous journalist in the country. Right. So so uh, even FDR getting inches in, in getting a line in Winchell's column was a, was a plus. Um, had some sort of falling out with Truman, though. So after FDR died, uh, he sort of backed off from the New Deal politics. Uh, the suggestion is that Truman said something anti-Semitic. Uh, and Winchell took offense as a Jewish man. Uh, good for him. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, what that cost him to do was to sort of switch sides. Yeah, it does. And seem he ended that up way, as right? a huge supporter. He ended up as a huge supporter of McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah, to go uh, from huge like New Deal Democrat of, of the to blacklist. being just so intensely yeah. like anti-communist. I mean, it happened a lot. He's yeah. not the only one. Right. But it's just a funny thing right. to me. It's like, what did you think that? that thing was like and we had we had that brief talk from patty chayefsky back when we did network as a bonus episode or one of i think we have had at least a couple films that patty chayefsky wrote in the actual collection uh where he frames his anti-communism as anti-anti-semitism uh because he also uh he believes the communists were uh you know it's it is a historical fact that uh, Jewish people were also persecuted under communism in a lot of Western Europe. Uh, that was not, or Eastern Europe rather. Well, but, uh, uh, but yeah, anyway. And we, we went down that rabbit hole a little bit with that. Yeah, we yeah. don't need to get into it. Uh, but in any case, Winchell might be someone, someone also making a similar decision to say, you know, I see, <clears throat> I see this persecution under communism. I see this persecution under Sovietism of Jewish people. Uh, so they are also not my friends. Um, how how you come around to I mean, to like, McCarthy yeah, should you, be your friend. You, that's always the, that's always the funny thing about that. Like I can totally understand that that line of reasoning. I you know yeah, it, and I get it. But also then to come around to definitely the people you've aligned yourself with in the United States are definitely anti-Semitic. Right. I guarantee it. Yeah, like 100%. and a lot of other. I don't even have to check. Yeah. A lot of other McCarthy supporters were coming after Winchell for being the media elite. Right. Uh, so, yeah, his his later life career, very weird. Um, the actual incident that this movie is based off of wasn't with his sister. Uh, he had a daughter uh, who, by all accounts, was very beautiful, uh, who was named Walta. Because he named her after himself. Yeah, that doesn't seem uh, problematic at all. Yeah. Um, he was extremely Walter, protective Jesus. to her. And at one point, she fell in love with a guy who the 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 man doing the, the presentation for Criterion openly calls a uh, con man. Uh, but he was, a, uh, he was a Broadway con man. Sort of the producer's sort of gone man. Right. I mean, like, I um, one has to assume, like, I understand that, like, you know, this is a, a sort of, I am always suspicious. I've yeah. become a very suspicious person over, right, the, year, right, over right. the years. No. They're like, boy, it sure seems like, suspicious sure about. seems like maybe people just went along with Walter Winchell's line on that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Winchell had his daughter committed 
under under the premise that anyone who would date this guy was obviously insane. Nice guy. Yeah, great guy. Um, was, was she forcefully lobotomized like a lot of women who were committed at that I time? I do not believe she was that's, forcibly that's lobotomized. Good. good for her, I guess, that that didn't happen. But I don't don't actually know that for sure. <laughs> don't cite you on that? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So that is that is sort of the, you know, obviously details changed. Uh, daughter becomes younger sister. Uh, Broadway huckster becomes jazz uh, jazz guitarist. blameless jazz musician, yes, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. All around seemingly um, nice guy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It would appear uh, that the writer of the this story and, and, and McKendrick, to a certain extent, have picked a side in this particular story. You know what I mean? Which, yeah. hey, fine. Good for you. Like, you know? No. It's the right I mean, side to pick if you're going to pick oh, a yeah, side. Oh, yeah, for sure. Winchell does not seem like a, uh, like a good guy and does not seem yeah. like he... Uh, like what he did there was a good thing. So, right, um, yeah. The only other thing is that Winchell's career was still existent when this movie came out, mm-hmm. and he did not mention it at all in pre-production, uh, but then made at least two references to it, wallowing uh, like a pig in the fact that it was not <laughs> that it was not making money. Well, um, I guess McKendrick and them got the last laugh because I almost have never thought about yeah. Walter Winchell in my entire life, and I just watched this movie. Right, 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 and that's and that's what what they end on in the bonus okay. feature is nobody knows who Winchell is except he's the guy who inspired Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah, so. it's, it's. I mean, that's that's the way yeah. these things work, right? Like you know, I mean, assuming that the film stock is not destroyed, the movie is forever. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. As I said, uh our portrayal of of JJ here is not not quite true to life as far as the sort of person Winchell was. I, I assume I have um, to assume that Walter Winchell physically. did not beat people half to death in apartment complex in apartment rooms. Maybe. Almost. But maybe he um, did. I don't know. I don't know how big he was. I don't know how big he was, but even, you know, metaphorically of value. Uh, Winchell was a guy who could kill you. Yes, yeah. Maybe not literally, but he could make sure you did not have the means to continue living. Uh, like well, Hans considering does he may or may not have some pretty guitar deep player. underworld connections, he may have also been able to have you killed. Right, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the movie, he doesn't need to kill you. Uh, he's got a, He's got a violent cop to do that for you. <laughs> for him. So, uh, yeah. Um. Curtis is really great in this movie. You said, you said, yes, my wife, unfortunately I'm going to have to cut that bit off. Yeah. My, I was, we were having like, I was watching it and like my wife walks into the room and she's like, that's a really handsome man. I was like, yeah, he is. I think Curtis (laughs) is a very handsome man. It's true. Um, he's, he's also an asshole in this movie. Yeah. Uh, No, I mean, mean, it's about a movie. Um, it, It, I could see how this movie would not do well, and we talked about like reasons why this might not do well. It's also about a bunch of bad people, right? Like inflicting right. pain on on seemingly not bad people, yeah. and and Dallas, Dallas, the blameless, the blameless jazz guitarist, is also you know he's set up as a foil to Hunsucker too, right? right? You know, and most of most of the 
consequences Dallas suffers are from being as hard-headed and standing up against Hunsucker uh, as uh, Hunsucker, rather, as uh, as Hunsucker himself is, you know. So, so there's that aspect too, and Dallas deserves to stand up for himself because he's yeah. getting he's not getting a fair shake here, and he's getting he's getting railroaded as a communist in the press. Uh, so like you know, there's that, but um, but then even Susan, who is our most blameless out of everything, and who does get the closest to a happy ending as anyone gets. Well, in this one movie, has to assume is, when it all shakes out, she is going to be with Dallas. He right. is not dead. Right. He's badly beaten. But also in, in part and parcel of needing of deciding to get revenge on uh um well now I just I forgot Tony Curse's character's actual like character Sidney Falco. Falco, yeah. To get revenge on uh, him, he has to exonerate Dallas. Right. Which is a very funny right. like sort of so now in theory he's undone everything that just happened. Right, like I mean, I mean, yeah, except for the beating. violence, right? But like, what yeah. I mean is like all that was literally for nothing, right? Because someone else made him more mad, right? And then like <laughs> his wife, or not wife, his uh, sister, Nate, you know, who was standing for his daughter, is now going off to be with him anyway, right? Like it just right. didn't, none of it me- right. meant anything, right? His anger and his sort of lashing yeah. out of people is just totally meaningless. It's just and all she gets. She gets to set out in the sunshine at the end of our film noir, right? So pretty indi- good indication that she's gonna she's gonna live her best life moving forward. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean it is it is a surprisingly happy ending to a a noir, <laughs> incredibly dark movie. Yeah, yes. And, uh, and, and notably, <clears throat> like notably, like it's a happy ending for the only for the person in the movie that like you want a happy ending for, right? Like you don't you don't need Falcon right. to have a happy ending. He doesn't deserve it. Like, I don't know. As as near as I can tell, uh, that that police officer probably has a happy ending too. Uh, I mean, he enjoys his work. He does enjoy his work. He's uh, about to get another opportunity to exhibit that work. Apparently, with Sidney Falco. Apparently, uh, Hunsucker has the uh, power to get cops exonerated for beating people half to death. Uh, that's that's a oh, fascinating no, no. skill. That's that's not Hunsucker. That's just the that's just the nature no, of the I, NYPD. I, they make reference to it though. Like Hunsucker like covers <laughs> yeah. up a thing that happened where he nearly beat a person to death before, beat a person to death before. Right. I like the the hold that Hunsucker has over the cop is is a little bit unclear. Right. You're just like, well, this is a dirty cop. Like that's all I really need to know. Uh <laughs> good enough. Yeah. Uh and yeah, no, he's he's I mean he does enjoy his work. I mean, we can can at least take solace in the fact that his dumb ass is in hell or whatever. But yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, oh, it it sort of seems like at some point he probably this fake character got his comeuppance at some point. If nothing else, karmically. Right. You hope so, but also almost certainly. No, did certainly not. not. <laughs> certainly not. I mean, we can uh, we can hope. It's 1957. I, I does this movie take? When, is this supposed to take place in the 30s? When is it supposed to take place in? The forties, theoretically, any time between nineteen thirty and nineteen fifty-seven, basically. Yeah, that's. I was trying to get a, like a kind of a grip on it because, like, you know, I I don't. You don't get a lot of looks at a lot of like technology or anything to like give you a good, right. satisfying like grip on the time and place. I mean, place obviously New York, but I mean like where we are in time. Uh, and I was like, man, this doesn't feel like nineteen fifty-seven though. 
uh, it doesn't feel right for right. me if it's seven. I mean, with and with our with our uh, music background being jazz, it also could be any time in that pa- time period. Um, there's no push to television here, which is sort of what's taking place in the late fifties. Well, wait, he is recording something in a theater, though. But the Hunsucker he is, has yeah, a he does has a that. show. I just wasn't clear on if it was a TV show or a radio show. Yeah. Um, and uh, the guy JJ's based off of did have a radio show right through the 50s, I believe, as well. I, I was assuming so, it was a radio show because we don't actually see a TV anywhere in the movie. So, Right. And recording radio shows in theater setups like that. That was pretty normal, yeah. Common practice. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> when, when exactly the sixth place is, is just... Is just there. Well, I was trying to get a grip on how likely that cop was to be murdered by somebody somebody who hated him, which does depend on the era. Um, yeah, that does. That's fair. Um, he works. He works in Manhattan, so getting him getting him to a river to end up in the river is going to be hard enough. Well, but they got uh, cars. I mean, that's what the, the cars city. are for. But there was actually uh, at one point, Patty Chayefsky was offered up as the replacement for Layman to do the rewrites mm-hmm. that Clifford Odets ended up doing. I imagine if Chayefsky had done those rewrites, we might get... Chayefsky seems like a man who's more about time and place. Right, yeah. Uh, even writing this early. So so maybe. I would have I would have been fascinated to have seen Chayefsky's version of this, but it seems like he was never hired for the job to begin with. He was just suggested for it. So, um, But yeah, you know, everything... Everybody's so so slimy in this. Yeah, no, I mean, and like you, you really get a good feel for the idea that like, oh, like there's no real good guys here. Like these are all another, bad people. Another reason I think this movie probably failed when it came out is that at this time Tony Curtis was still pretty much a matinee star. Okay, and like no one really took him serious as an actor. Uh, and also. He was, uh, you know, he was a <laughs> he was a guy where wives could walk by the movie poster and say, "Hey, that's a that's a handsome man. That's a handsome man." <laughs> so, you know, um, I'm familiar with that effect. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure that. Uh, not sure that he was really. If anyone came to this because they were in love with Tony Curtis. They're going gonna, to be disappointed. Yeah, you're going to watch right? Tony Curtis be an absolute slime ball. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I mean, it seems like I mean, it does seem like the deck the deck is stacked against this movie. Okay, very right. very specifically. Right. Yeah, it's excellent, but like it does feel like oh boy, like this is doomed to fail. And like if Winchell if Winchell still had the power that this movie suggests that he still had, I mean, it's like. It's like uh, Citizen Kane in that regard. Like, it doesn't need to be explicitly about them for them to even know that it's about them and still try to quash it. Right, right. right. And Winchell, Winchell maybe even had more power than, <laughs> uh, you know, because everybody, nobody wants to offend Winchell. Like, I can imagine, I can imagine a world where this movie came out where other film critics and other cultural critics would have been afraid to praise this movie. Yeah, no, totally. Because offending yeah. Wenchel could have had a negative effect on their on their career. 
Yeah, I mean, so, I, I, it'd be, I would be interested. I, you know, it's such a time and place thing. I have to assume there are at least a few critics who make their money literally on being the people who argue with Winchell, like who like are the opposition. You know what I mean? Like, because there's always there's always those there's always the people whose entire career is based on being the opposition to the dominant power, right? Um, we kind of get a stand-in for that, that uh, the one uh, writer, Lee or whatever, who, like, reveals to his wife that he, at least semi-reveals to his wife that he had, that he cheated on her rather than take a dirty scoop. Right, So yeah. one, one could imagine a calmness like that being, like, the sort of, like, the opposition, right, who, who right. is not probably actually, it's not any less dirty, but just makes their bones on being the opposition to, uh, to Winchell. I, I, right. I have to. Assume and by this time, in, in in fifty something seven, I also have to assume that that Winchell had had enough uh, competition. Right. Right. Um, well, I mean, if nothing else, TV that, is going uh, to do a lot to tear Winchell apart. Right? right. Like it's it's going to be right. Like. A lot of people went through a lot of changes as TV came on the scene and suddenly like found themselves to be a lot less powerful than they had been a decade yeah. before. Yeah. Um, this as a journalism movie, given the, the tenor of other journalism movies we've watched, uh, much closer to something like Ace in the Hole, uh, but then also taking place as a noir in New York, whereas Ace in the Hole is you know literally in the middle of the desert. Uh, is uh, is very interesting. Um, you know, it's inhabiting inhabiting a New York journalism of the time that is very yellow, right? Even as you know, we we sort of can we can put that wall up and say, well, this isn't journalism, and the movie doesn't present it as journalism. It is always just the gossip column. The real news is not dealt with in this film, right? But on the flip side, like if one keeps in mind like the power and like sort of influence that Walter Winchell had, like yeah. It is the news. It is what people are just, watching and listening. When, like, and we even see right. our our character, our Hunsucker here, take umbrage at the idea that somehow the people who watch it, like, it's not really. He's not actually right. actually taking umbrage to the idea that uh, this person has maligned his listeners. He's just taking umbrage to the fact that, like, oh, you've called me not a real, not right. a real journalist, right? To suggest he's not real, yeah. And JJ, JJ knows what real. <laughs> You know, it's journalism of the proletariat, sure, and it's a bad proletariat, but um, but it is still journalism, and he's still got politicians meeting with him clandestinely in in the Twenty One Club, uh, just as Winchell went to the White House right. for FDR, and you know these are we're doing political PR, but political PR is the backbone of American journalism, right, right. so uh, for better or worse, usually for worse. I'd say ninety nine point nine nine percent. I can't think of a I no. There's really no good. There's no upside for the, better, for, the actually, for the for the for the people yeah. in this. But yeah, I want to I want to leave the possibility that there might be an upside, but who knows? Um, but yeah. So, uh, Time Magazine did speak uh, speak positively about this film when it came out. Uh, taught direction, superb camera work, uh, whiplash dialogue. I mean, the dialogue is extremely fast. Um, I I had to yeah. stop and rewind several times when I was watching this. Movie. I was like, "This is yes. this movie is yes." A li- like, I am sure a that I'm, hard to follow. I'm sure I missed a lot of good lines too. JJ does have some really great 
And Winchell, Winchell was famous for, for his own little neologisms. Um, but JJ gets some really great lines about, uh, cookie made of arsenic. Uh, great one. A lot of great lines in this movie. Um, but again, you know, I don't know that originate with layman. So <laughs> who knows? Maybe some of them do. But uh, the New York Herald and Time both put this on their top 10 list for 1957. Um, but other than that, it seems like nobody praised it at the time. Right, but those those three uh, are not nothing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, and right, one, right, one could see right. a world where you're like, oh, well, these are the three that could actually, like, pick a bit of a fight with Walter yeah. Winchell. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right, like, can, right, can right. survive and, his ire a little bit. And were people, you know, Time Time Magazine and the New York Herald were monoliths against which Winchell was still an outsider. Right, right. Because right. they're, they're hard news uh, that don't that don't deal with the gossip stuff right, that, right. that Winchell deals with, the tabloid stuff that he's making famous. It's interesting that they did decide to make, to match the imposingness of the sort of like cultural figure that Winchell is with, with Burt Lancaster is a very imposing and, uh, and right scary man. Um, I, I find that interesting, right? Because it, you you can see why you would want to do that, right? Like it makes sense, right? You need you need the audience to feel that this person is a threat, and that's hard to get across from purely like social constructs right like yeah. you know everybody presumably knows that that Walter Winchell is like powerful and dangerous and that like you wouldn't want to cross him but getting that across in a film is really tough right like it's possible but it's tough and they do do it with like the cultural thing too right like they're constantly like people are shaking their boots about him right um right but like you, there's a limit to how much that can do, and so making him also physically imposing uh, is is a is an interesting move it, to the point where right, it's not, he's but... not just not. They're also highlighting Burt Lancaster's size because they're like kind of shooting up at him a lot. They're getting a little bit angle on him, so he's even he's even bigger than than he actually is. Yeah, but so often, so often when he is shot, he's sitting down though, right? He's right, but they still shoot low shots a... while he's sitting. It's kind of weird, actually. That's true. Like he's sitting that. Yeah. T- I'm thinking about that meeting he's taking. Right, if you go back and review, and this is some of this is probably in my head, but I did go check a little bit. Yeah. That meeting he's taking, okay, with the senator and the and the PR, the other PR agent, I guess, and and his yeah. his actress that's working he's working with, they shoot. The way the the film is shot, when they're shooting Hunsucker, the camera's low down on the table and shooting up yeah. at him. And when they're shooting the PR person in the center, they shoot down as though it's a little bit from Hunsucker's perspective. It's very weird. So they right. come out being very right. small, and he comes out being very big. No, it's great. Yeah. No, it's absolutely- And they also stage um, Falco right. behind Hunsucker enough that it, like you get a forced perspective thing where, where Falco's also quite small. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, especially in that moment when JJ is spending most of that conversation trying to make Falco feel more small. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, there was there was some conflict on set in shooting that scene, from what I oh, really? what I read about. Uh, Burt Lancaster insistent. Um, the original the way it was scripted was that 
Falco comes and joins them at the table. And Burt Lancaster, absolutely insistent that J.J. would not scoot over for Falco. Yeah, I think which he's I right. Think is true to the character. Yeah. And he's right. Um, uh, so refused to, to shoot the scene because J.J. would not move over for Falco. And if J.J. doesn't move over for Falco, Falco's not there. And how does that at all work? Uh, and then McKendrick was like, okay, Tony, as you're walking in, grab a chair. Um, but, but that also matches. Solved. It actually works uh-huh. out really well, right? Because it matches with the kind right. of character that uh, the Falco is, right? This the like Falco incredibly is. Yeah. persistent, like almost like annoyingly so, right. would absolutely grab another chair yeah. and sit behind them if he has to. Right. It works very right. well. It's an excellent scene. Yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that it's JJ's introduction, and we've we've heard about JJ, we've talked to JJ, and even even. Uh, it's the the suspense in a reveal of who JJ is, right? Uh, <clears throat> because even when we arrive at the club, Sydney calls him from the payphone, calls the front desk, and says <laughs> that he can see. You know, you know, he's in the same room as the second as the the switchboard operator. It's like, hey, can you go get him for me and have him have him talk to me on a house phone? It's like, well, he's like twenty feet away. Yeah, it's like no. This is this is how it has to be right now. Um, and sure enough, JJ says, "Do not come into this restaurant." And Sydney comes into the restaurant. So yeah, their their whole personal dynamic there. It's yeah, it's incredibly well done. Um, the way that sequence establishes the power that JJ has in political realms and particularly over Falco. Um, the way it ends with JJ inviting Falco to to match him, to also insult him in the way that he's just spent the last 20 minutes right. insulting Falco. And Falco very quietly says, no, I don't think so right now. Um, just the relationship building right there in that such a short right, film, right. such a short scene, uh, just phenomenally done. Um, I will, I will go back and say, I do think you're right to say the way he's shot, he still seems physically imposing even when he's sitting down. But JJ does sit down most most of the times he's on screen like even even the confrontation with Dallas he's sitting in the theater chair right right um and i think he does stand up at some points during that but uh but that's there's part of that power that that he can be relaxed while this man is mad at him right 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 i mean because it's something so part of it but I, i'm more coming from i think yeah. a purely like sort of sort of like film technique they do shoot him in a way yeah. to make him Somehow very big, despite Still, being sitting in a chair. Right. And some of that has to do with how, how close the shot's taken right. from. Like, they shoot Tony Curtis's character from further away, so he's small. Yeah. They just keep doing these things to make... And, of course, Hunsaker when, huge. When they need J.J. to be physically imposing, when J.J. beats up Falco, he is shot standing up, right? Hand in mm-hmm. shadow, and it's a very noir fight. But but he's he is imposing there. Not just in his anger, but in his physicality. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> there is something the essay brings up here, and unfortunately, I am not familiar enough with the Great Gatsby to do anything but yield to the essayist. Um, the Criterion essay for this one is written by uh Gary Giddens, and um. He spends a couple of paragraphs, it's a very long essay, but he spends a couple of paragraphs talking about connections to uh, 
um, The Great Gatsby. Okay. And how it was obvious obvious that McKendrick and, and other production people had Great Gatsby in mind. It's not a one-for-one one necessarily. Um, uh, Lancaster, uh, Lancaster as J.J. gets the late reveal that Gatsby does. You know, we don't meet Gatsby until sort of incidentally very much into the book. Um, the disembodied eyes of the Doctor's billboard in The Great Gatsby we get with J.J. in the newspaper ad- advertisements with his eyes. Um <clears throat> but the most interesting one that I honestly, you know, everything else could be sort of coincidence and, and it can exist. Uh, but a very interesting one is the comedian that J.J. praises that then Falco goes and uh, weasels his way into as claiming to be the reason J.J. <laughs> JJ will be praising him in tomorrow's paper. Um, that is played by a guy named Joe Frisco. And Frisco is one of the only real celebrities named in The Great Gatsby. Oh, interesting. And the fact that uh, within the film, he is praised as such a funny and fresh talent by J.J., uh, even though this is a very old man right, who's right, dressed right, like yeah. he's a vaudeville guy, <clears throat> is is interesting. And, yeah, Frisco himself did die just after production too um so you know there's there's something to that that i think is more concrete than than any sort of literary illusions because all of that could be coincidence but the inclusion of frisco seems like a deliberate choice so right right uh i don't know i mean um, yeah like i, I said i don't know enough about gatsby to, yeah, to I really i don't know anything about jump gatsby into that at all yeah uh it may it would make sense right like i mean it if the movie is already a bunch of like a reference to a bunch of real sort of re- real events, it makes sense to also sort of like tie it in in other ways to like other books and stuff like that. Um, they're all sort of dealing with celebrity and things like that. So, um, right, right. Gatsby is definitely something that deals with celebrity too. It's interesting. Yeah, that is very. It is. I did. It is a very fun. Like the closest thing, almost to a comedic element of the film, is like the fact that he, that this fresh young, fresh young talent is like this old man, and he goes and like yeah, pitches him this sort of like funny, ridiculous, funniest guy I've ever seen. Now apparently, apparently Winchell was also pretty famous for just giving shout outs to comedians who who's who didn't have pressmen. Just he went to comedy shows, and if they made him laugh, he he say something about it and i guess uh i guess jerry lewis got got an early plug from winchell that that really set him off so so yeah that's another thing that pulled from the reality of winchell's article but also just uh it is weird that the guy's so old <laughs> like i was taken out of the film yeah that, that, did, that was a little surprising it's like, wait which one of which one of these guys is the comedian right, right. Like, yeah exactly because both of these guys are too old for this one thing I have in my notes that I forgot to mention uh, in the real life, the pulled from the from real life section. Okay. Uh, the guy that Wenchel's daughter fell in love with. Uh-huh. Uh, Wenchel conspired with the FBI and, and the uh, uh, U.S. District Attorney to 
get this guy arrested and convicted because a plea deal was was completely off the table uh, for tax evasion for four grand. Had four thousand dollars of income over the course of two years and did not file taxes. And Winchell got him imprisoned for eighteen months for it. That sounds about right. I mean, Winchell's a piece of work, yeah. right? Like, I mean, yeah. And then, and then after, I imagine that Winchell's daughter did not end up with this guy, uh, mostly because I feel like someone would have mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but after, uh, still hounded him enough that that he left the country. He moved out of America. The guy did. Oh. Um, I mean, so yeah, which makes you know the the happy ending here is much more poignant, but unfortunately not real. <laughs> no, no, but 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 <laughs> to, like it kind to of what we're drawing from it but. does, but they do get the idea that like this guy will like you've you've attracted his ire. It doesn't matter that he's already out of the picture essentially, like it, that he's no longer a problem. Right. You're just going to keep hounding him. Just out of pure spite, just like just a very deeply spiteful, angry person who will just attack people, right? Just because they make him mad. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, that's <sighs> got to think about you know politically how how we have people who are on board with New Deal politics and then end up doing shit like that. Right. Right. Uh, I do find it and interesting. People are complicated. Very... People are multifaceted. People are multifaceted. Right. But I do find it really interesting and somewhat uh, cathartic that that Walter Wingell's career was essentially ended by a talk show host. <laughs> like I feel like I feel like that's just the most fitting end to to this. Person. I mean, he had already apparently, like according to Wikipedia, like fallen pretty pretty heavily into disfavor. As a lot of people, yeah. as a lot of the the McCarthy sort of like anti-communists eventually did, right? Like that whole thing sort of. Yeah. A lot of people Thankfully. who were on board for that eventually sort of found that the pub, the public was no longer really interested in their shenanigans anymore. But um, yeah, just the idea that a talk show host just essentially destroyed him, like just yeah. ripped him apart, and they, he just never recovered from that is very um, it's very funny to me. I just feel like yeah, that that makes sense, right? Again, sort of fitting with the themes of uh, broadcast news as well, right? Like the idea that like this, yeah, a, and even probably even more sort of like lowbrow version of yeah. the news destroys this old version of the lowbrow version of the news. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that it was Jack Parr too. Yeah, and it, and it's Jack Parr holding on to a real long time grudge in order to do it. Yeah, uh, because like. Ed Sullivan got his start being a Winchell uh, hanger-on, being being a, a co-opting Winchell's whole thing to write his own gossip column, and that's how Ed Sullivan got into the entertainment right. business, uh, which is interesting in its own right. But then to have have Jack Parr run in with the steel chair, yes, during, yeah. <laughs> during what should be Ed Sullivan and Walter Winchell's fight. Especially, especially given in '56, Winchell himself started a variety show on on NBC that basically stole Ed Sullivan's show's format <laughs> right back to have Jack Jack Parr coming. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's really fun. It's, it's just it feels uh, very fitting, right? That like, of course, like 
it, it really does feel that sort of like, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword sort of thing, right? Like, it, yeah. it's like, yeah, of course you were going to go out like this, right? Like, you you live this way, and now here it is catching up with you. All these people who are acting exactly how you acted are the people who tear you apart. But, yeah. Uh Winchell, Winchell's Wikipedia has a has a section called ethical. Feelings. I know it's amazing. It's so rare to see that. Yeah. But it's like apparently, like just mixing it in with the, like the career section was getting uh, burdensome. Yeah, so he needed to make a whole extra section for it. Oh man! Oh man! What an ass! I, I he's an anti-vaxer to polio. Oh my god! <laughs> oh. Reported that it killed several monkeys, and the CDC will confirm this. What a guy! What a guy that guy in his old age. Yeah. I mean Oh <laughs> uh, man. No. This movie this movie was easy on him. Yeah, in reality <laughs> in actuality, the yeah. person presented in this movie is not nearly as terrible as, as the real Walter Winchell. That's <laughs> Winchell actually. Yeah, yeah it, it's like because probably oh, more yeah. than likely at some point, uh if they had tried to, they would have run into like you know, serious pro- legal problems at some point. But yeah, like just it's a real like I, and like the like the kind of anti vaxxer who goes out of his way to like scare people and to not get it's just really amazing like yeah truly for polio too. I mean what well you can say it's it's uh. really easy to see a direct line between Walter Winchell and like modern quote unquote journalism oh, yeah. especially with like regards to something like Fox News or something like that right like oh yeah there's no yeah. there's no. no difference here like I mean the format's different but that's all that there's really here is just a different format. Um, right. Yeah. Really, kind of amazing. Now, Winchell did. Uh, Winchell did apparently pride himself on only publishing truth. Uh, yeah, but had, boy, he, man, that word he is had such his a own Weasley word. The word truth. He right? had his own blacklist that you didn't you didn't need sources if you came to him with news because if he found out you lied to him, you went on the blacklist, and then your career was ruined. Uh, and I'm sure so that, that always worked and but, never, ever resulted I, in him publishing right. anything that was untrue. Maybe we should go back to the ethical problems. Right, exactly. Page and find out how many of those are because of that sort of thing. Uh, at least a few. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's just not. JJ's is not as bad as I feel like Winchell was in real life. Yeah, I know. And of course, we're getting we're getting JJ in one in one story, but even the one story that this is drawn off of was significantly worse than yeah, what no, it's portrayed I mean, like, as in they, the film. They lightened they 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 took it light on that character because what actually happened was much much more cruel, yeah. right? Like right. And more than likely, now, to a certain extent, in writing the story, ran into the problem of like, oh, this person is so bad that if I wrote the story as it actually happened, audiences no one wouldn't would believe buy it, it too. right? Like audiences right. would just not right. go for it, right? Like that. And unfortunately, audience still didn't buy it. But right. Well, I mean, I don't think I don't uh, think it's necessarily that this is they 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 didn't believe the story about Walter Winchell that that, that right. didn't sell them on the movie. It's just that yeah. like. The movie's right. wrong, wrong place, wrong time, wrong everything in a lot of ways, right? Like nobody's yeah. watching this kind of noir nineteen fifty seven. It's just not happening. Certainly not in black and white. I do, I do absolutely love that. Despite 
Yeah. Of all the changes made from reality, uh, Susie winning in the end. Susie getting some it's, sort of victory. It's good, right? I mean, I like it. It works, and it feels good. And after, uh, after a really yeah. dark, fucked up movie, it's kind of a relief yeah. that, like, he doesn't also then just, like, abuse her into staying or she doesn't jump off the building. Right. And out of Because there was a movie world where, where she just then, so... turns around and jumps off the building, right? right? Like, it, for real. Right. Out of a movie for where so much of it, we don't even recognize that Susie's our protagonist. Right, right. To have her win and become the main character in the final few minutes. It's really good. Very it's good. really good, and yeah. Really effective storytelling in a way that I could see myself complaining about in other way in other instances. But here, it well, just I mean, is she just yeah, like the way she just suddenly like takes power and like we see yeah. and like even again back to the way it's shot. Like we watch the Jay uh, Huns- uh, Hunsucker like crumple as she leaves. Like right. like the last scene we get of him, he's small. Yes. He's not imposing. He's not scary. He's just nothing, and that's it's really powerful, right? Like, and then she's outside and she's in the light and she's walking. She's totally free, right? It, yeah, is it true to real life? No, absolutely not, because that son of a bitch wouldn't let that sort of thing happen. But like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, seemingly would. That's, yeah, that's the yeah. point where she gets institutionalized right. and. And 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 her would be boyfriend her or husband gets or whatever gets framed yeah. for or gets gets <laughs> railroaded, railroaded for tax evasion yeah. and then flees the country. Yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting to me is like, can you? Sorry, I I, I was just thinking like he, I I kind of like I, obviously we don't know the whole story, but like that that guy her con, air quotes con man boyfriend, right? I'm really fascinated yeah. by the idea that like. Winchell continued to hound him right after he got out of out of uh, out of jail. Like that's a really fascinating thing because at this point he's not even using his newspaper column, right? Because nobody wants to read an article no. about some random former Broadway guy who went to jail for eighteen. Like he's not even a subject of stories anymore, right? Like he's right. He's totally using backroom influence peddling to make his life hell just out of pure spite, right? right? Like it's not even like this person has anything to attack at this point, right? Because, like, he's not going to make a Broadway play. He's not going to do anything, right? But you're just going to... So it's, like, it, it, totally outside of the scope of being a, quote-unquote, journalist. It's also just using all the power you've accumulated to just punish people you hate. It's, it's wild, man. Right. It's so fucking wild. Right. Yeah. Punish people who dared love your daughter. And punish your daughter for it too, right? Like to punish, like, right? You, like you're not even doing it because you love her, Damn because her. you don't put people into fucking insane asylums. You don't have them committed, right? Like, I don't know how to like this. This war sentence is having a hard time being formed, but like, you don't involuntarily commit people who obviously aren't sick, right? Because you love them, because they fell in love with the wrong right. Person. Yeah, because you know it's that's such a but like every person dark would be the wrong person, do, right? So, like, yeah, it's clearly out of your own yeah. belief in like your importance and protecting your reputation or whatever. Nothing to do with her, right? Right. Yeah. Um. So one more note on just the phenomenal talent going into the production yes. side of this movie. The music is great. Yes, it is. Uh, it <clears> is extremely both. the music of this movie. 
Right. Right. But it really works out. Um, everybody's got their little motif. Uh, it's just phenomenal. Um, it's done. Uh, the score is done by Elmer Bernstein, who would go on to do. I mean, he he'd already been working. Uh, he did the Ten Commandments and the Magnificent Seven. Uh, but also during the eighties, he just fell in with the right group of people. Uh, and, <laughs> and he did the music for Animal House, Meatballs, Airplane, The Blues Brothers, Stripes, Trading Places, Ghostbusters, Spies Like Us, and Three Amigos. Damn. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um. So he's he's uh he's our score, uh. But then a lot of the music within it is done by Chico Hamilton's quartet, right? Um, or quintet, and also they play themselves as as uh, I'm pretty sure they play themselves as the backing band for Dallas. Uh, Dallas, who incidentally could not manage to mime playing guitar, the guy playing Dallas. <laughs> Uh, so all the shots, all the shots of his, uh, you'll, you'll notice that when we see him playing, he's either singing or shot from behind. How can you not uh, manage and to mind playing the guitar? I don't know how that's possible. When he is shot, yeah, when he's shot from behind, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe he's one of those guys who's of the mind, well, the left hand's always moving, right? So I gotta, I gotta move that left hand up and down the fretboard. In a way that just wasn't natural, He's just or maybe doing some real maybe the guys air guitar, yeah, or maybe uh, you know maybe everyone was so particular about it being true to life that because he couldn't realistically mime, you know, there's a point where miming guitar is indistinguishable from being able to play the guitar, right? And if he just couldn't play the guitar. I'm um, just thinking, like, the movie is, like, relatively not that much about his ability to play guitar. Like, right. as long as it's a half-decent job, nobody's going to care. Yeah. Um, what I find funny, very funny about it, and the reason I bring it up, though, is that for all of the insert shots of him actually playing, uh, it is uh, it is one of the other members of the quintet reaching in to do the fingering. Uh, so... <laughs> So another another testament to to James Wong Howe's uh, cinematography that he managed to shoot shoot a main actor from behind with someone else's left arm arm coming into frame to be his arm for <laughs> playing guitar. Um, but yeah, uh, the music's so good. They actually released two soundtracks for this, uh, one with one with Bernstein's score, and then one that's still branded as a soundtrack but just all it's a it's a chico hamilton album right basically so um but yeah oh man i i just start i I unfortunately got lost a little bit in the ethical violation or the ethical failings and got into the whole thing (laughs) the whole thing with josephine baker and like oh yeah that was bad it's real bad yeah that comes up in the that comes up in the bonus feature a little bad and it's real bad I mean, yeah. it's good to know that 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 doing that hurt his career, but like, yeah, because deservedly so. But like, right, got her work visa terminated. I don't understand. Yeah. I I I do not know enough about Josephine Baker's career and personal life to understand a hundred percent. But like, I guess because. I don't understand, but whatever. It, it, he's very bad, very very bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think we could probably pull this one to a close. Sweet smell of success. Um, 
directed by Alexander McKendrick, who we will never see another movie from in the Criterion Collection. Uh, no, that might not be true. I, I um, think it is true. I do not think he's in the Criterion Collection. But I, I'm pretty sure it's true. Uh, yeah. Starring Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis. Uh, Susan Harrison, who was like 19 at the time. You know, she's age appropriate for right. for who she's playing, but uh, doing phenomenal. Yeah, very, very really good. She'd already very been doing good. stage work for years, apparently. Um, but yeah, uh, just uh, just a phenomenal, fun, fun movie. Martin Milner, even though he can't mime guitar, still good acting. Does a good job. Yeah, no, um, I mean, very yeah. much plays, it does a good job of playing that like sort of very this very straight laced yeah he's just very good blameless blameless jazz <laughs> yes which does seem to be like it's a, it's a funny choice for the movie because like that is such seemingly such what a contradiction but <laughs> yeah oh that's actually another another interesting note on the music is that because part of the plot does hinge on dallas being actually a clean jazz musician who has never done drugs and we are at a point where uh, you know, people are being jazz musicians are being busted for like heroin addictions, um, because it's you know it's just really hard to play every night. Uh, understand that. Anyway, uh, production detectives followed Chico Hamilton's quintets around to make sure they weren't drug addicts before <laughs> before they were Jeez. invited to be part of the movie. Oh my god! Yeah, America's a very stupid um, place. And pres- and presumably marijuana would have counted of the Oh yeah, for sure. For considering sure. that's the one that's in the in the plot. Uh so yeah. Uh there is that aspect. Another fun little trivia for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But a phenomenally directed, phenomenally shot, phenomenally written and performed movie yeah. that uh should be a lot more famous than it was when it came out, but has obviously uh <laughs> It's picked up. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I mean, it's, a, it's, it is. It's a classic now. It is so very good. It, it's, it's, it deserves yeah. a lot of praise. Very happy to have watched it. Thank you, Criterion Collection, for that. Next week, we'll be talking about another Visconti film, Lucino Visconti. We've seen a couple of films by. It's been a long time since we had yeah, uh, our first movie leopard. from him. Goodness gracious. The Leopard ago. was so phenomenal. It was long, but it was Yeah, phenomenal. it was a very good movie. It's just so um, long ago. It's like almost just yeah. a distant memory at this point. So we'll do another uh, another movie about Italian aristocracy from him with Senso next week from 1954. His wheelhouses, if you will. Uh, well, the other movie we've seen from him was uh, was it The White Knight, which was a, a, a Dostoevsky right, adaptation, right. if I remember correctly. So, um, not not necessarily about Italian aristocracy. No, no, no. Would it pa- put it past there, uh, Dostoevsky? He could he could handle it. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, John Spatrick, Corey Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
this has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening. <laughs>